Well, it is always a pleasure to open up God's word. Join me in John chapter 13. John chapter 13, where we're going to begin to enter a very precious portion of God's word together for a while. John chapter 13, which is known as Jesus' farewell address, Jesus' final and long goodbye to his apostles as Jesus is readying himself for his cross. It's a goodbye that spans five chapters, chapter 13 through 17, and it's unique to only John's gospel. It's a farewell that begins in the upper room. Remember, we are on Thursday night of Jesus' Passion Week. Jesus is going to die in just a few hours. We're in the upper room Thursday night. Verse one, we see that Jesus and his apostles are celebrating the final Passover meal together. It starts in chapter 13, is during supper on this Thursday evening, it's verses one and two. But unlike the synoptic accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John records Jesus' farewell continuing throughout this evening. As Jesus and his band leave the upper room, turn to John 14, verse 31. Notice the shift now. Jesus says, get up, let us go from here. Let us leave this upper room. And now Jesus and his apostles begin to walk this night through the streets of Jerusalem along the Kidron Valley. They're heading to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's an evening walk Jesus uses to prepare his apostles for life without him. He begins to warn them of what will take place after he leaves them. Turn to chapter 15, verse 19. What are they going to face once he departs? Verse 19, if you are of the world, the world would love its own. But there's a problem. Because you are not of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Persecution's coming. Gospel hatred is on the horizon for you. This is why Jesus offers throughout this night amazing promises to his apostles. He tells them in the midst of this gospel hatred that's coming, they will be given the comfort and the power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill their gospel ministry and their calling. The Spirit will come to keep them faithful until the end. Look at chapter 15, verse 26. The helper's coming. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, here's my promise, I'm sending you my spirit. That is the spirit of truth. He will testify about me and you will also testify about me. You've been called to proclaim the gospel. You'll proclaim it, the spirit will proclaim it. You won't be alone. I'm giving you my spirit. Drop down to verse six, uh, chapter 16, verse seven. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Right now, you can't comprehend that my leaving is for your good, but it's for your benefits. 
Why? For if I do not go away, the helper, my spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This is for your benefit, for your good. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Chapter after chapter, we see these promises of hope from Jesus to his apostles, again, preparing them for his departure, what life will be like after he leaves. And these promises continue until Jesus reaches the Garden of Gethsemane and then offers his high priestly prayer for his people. Chapter 17, notice. It's a prayer that Jesus offers his father. He's going to seal every promise he has made through the last four chapters, seal them with intercession. What's amazing that we see in chapter 17 is that Jesus broadens these promises to us. Look at verse 20. 1720, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. Every promise I have made throughout these last five chapters, it's not only for those 11, it's for us too. For those also who believe in me through their word. It's a precious portion of scripture because this long goodbye is also for us. We're living during the time of Jesus' departure, right? We need this farewell address. John Calvin spoke about this passage and says this is a passage that reveals the Savior's soul. It's precious to us. But not only is this farewell address filled with promises and warnings, it's also filled with commands. And one particular command above all other commands, one particular command that's repeated over and over again Go back to chapter 13. Look at verse 34. Here's the command. A new commandment I give to you that you what? Love one another. He repeats it at the end of the verse for emphasis that you also love one another. Look at verse 35, repeated, driving home the point. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. By what, Jesus? if you have love for one another. Look at chapter 15, verse nine. 15.9, abide in my love. Let it surround you and cover you. Chapter 15, verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. That's the example. It's the model of this love I'm commanding you. Repeat it again in chapter 15, verse 17. This I command you that you love one another. How will these apostles survive in Jesus' absence? How will these 11 and broaden it out to us now since Jesus broadens this out? How does the church today carry on Christ's gospel work while he is gone? Make it specific. How do we here at EBC remain united and faithful and strong and enduring in the midst of gospel hatred? 
How does Christ's gospel flourish in an unbelieving world? Here's how, by our love for one another. Yes, it's through the promises Jesus gives throughout the night. Yes, it's through the Spirit coming to us. But the fruit of the Spirit is what? It's love. Love one another. Have this committed devotion to fellow believers. Selflessly give for the good of those in this room. Care for one another. Sacrifice even when wronged, even when undeserved. Forgive one another when sinned against. Love one another repeated over and over again. Love for one another is what will hold this band of men together as Jesus leaves them. Love for one another, look back to chapter 13, love for one another is what will set Christ's gospel apart from every other gospel. It's verse 35. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. Again, by your love for one another. It's unique love. It's commanded love. Love for each other is what the church needs. Love must be fought for to be maintained. But here's the key. This kind of selfless, committed, devoted, caring, forgiving love was not, it was not what Jesus' disciples had for one another at this point on Thursday evening. Listen to Luke 22. When the hour had come, he, Jesus, reclined at the table and the apostles with him, but notice this statement, there arose a dispute, an argument. They're fighting now among themselves, and what are they fighting about? Here it is. This makes sense, knowing the disciples, as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. That's what they're fighting about. That's the conflict. As Jesus is preparing to offer himself in the greatest act of sacrificial love, as chapter 13 of John, verse one puts it, loving his own to the end, to the max, to the fullest, here are his disciples concerned above all else for themselves. Their individual place of preeminence in Christ's kingdom. They want to be recognized They're jockeying for position over one another. They're finding fall against one another. It sounds like a church business meeting, doesn't it? Here it is. That's not true here. I'm just joking. They're tearing one another down. They're building themselves up. Love is not permeating this meal. No pride and selfishness are present here. And it's so easy to give the apostles the stink eye at this point, right? What are you thinking? But let's be honest. What's more common in our personal lives? What's more common even in church life? Is it for us to find fault with one another or to selflessly serve one another? What's more common? What's more common, to bite and devour one another or to build one another up? 
to judge one another's motives or to assume the best, to bicker, complain, gossip, tear down, break fellowship with, leave, or love in a way that stays committed to one another, even to our own hurt. What's more common? We know the answer. We know it's easiest, right? This is why Jesus does the unthinkable in verse four, chapter 13. The one who just declared himself to be the all-glorious son of man back in chapter 12, the, the coming king, son of man king of Daniel 7, the one who would be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that people from all nations will serve him. The one in verse three who knows that the father had given all things into his hands. Jesus, the king of kings, rises from the table in order to serve his apostles by washing their dirty feet. Why? Why does Jesus do this? Because his apostles are bickering with one another. They're fighting with one another. They're selfish. They're proud. And they needed to see love in action. They needed to see the very love Jesus will command each of them to show one another later in the night. What breaks selfish pride? Answer, humble love. These men needed to see divine love put on display. Not only hear the command, love one another. Again, this is a command in some fashion that's repeated almost 10 times in the next three chapters. But they needed to see that command in action. They needed to see the greatest example of love lived out right in front of their eyes. And I would argue this morning, so do we, right? We need to see divine love put on display. Start in verse four, let's read the text. We'll go through verse 17. Jesus got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. And he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example 
that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. We'll spend this week and next week working our way through these verses. Let's just look at a few hooks to hang our thoughts on as we move through the text. We'll get through verse 11 this morning. Begin with the Savior's posture. The Savior's posture. It's verse four. As the apostles are busy arguing about their own greatness, Jesus quietly gets up from the table. He's had enough of their selfish talk. And he begins to undress himself down to his undergarments. And then proceeds to find a towel in the room. A long towel. Ties it to his shoulder. Lets it flow down to the ground. He's putting on the uniform of a slave and a Gentile slave at that. And the way John records verses four and five, it's slow and dramatic. He uses present tense verbs to describe the scene. It means this, John wants us to see what Jesus is doing right in front of us. He wants us to see it as if it's happening now. Fix this scene in your mind. Never forget this. Then in verse five, we're told that Jesus found a bowl and poured, again, a present tense verb. See Jesus pouring the water into the basin and then he began to wash the disciples' feet. This is unprecedented. Never, never would a superior wash the feet of his inferiors, not in Greek culture or Roman culture or Jewish culture. One commentator wrote this, I know of no other example, no other example in the literature of the ancient world before the coming of Jesus where such a foot washing by a leader occurs. It's unprecedented. So you can imagine how deafening the silence became once the disciples begin to realize what Jesus is doing, the Lord is becoming the lowly. The son of God is becoming the slave of man. The sovereign is now wearing the clothes of a servant. In fact, Peter is appalled at what he sees Jesus do here. He stops arguing, Peter stops arguing with the other 11, and he begins to start arguing with Jesus. Verse six, so he came to Simon Peter. He, Peter, said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? That is to say, Jesus, what are you doing? You're humiliating yourself. You're demeaning yourself. Literally, Peter says, Lord, you of me washing the feet, the pronouns are emphatic. Peter's incredulous. Don't do this, Lord. Don't embarrass yourself like this. In fact, notice verse eight. Peter said to him, never, ume, a strong negative, never. And then Peter adds the phrase tanayona, literally into the age, translated this way, by no means forever. 
under no circumstance whatsoever shall you wash my feet. Peter's appalled that Jesus is stooping so low before him. He's sickened that Jesus would do slave work. So he forbids Jesus to wash his feet. This is the Savior's posture. He puts on the clothes of a servant and readies himself to do the work of a slave. This leads into the symbolic picture. The symbolic picture. Understand here, everything Jesus is doing, everything Jesus is doing is highly symbolic. This is a living picture of his love for his people. Verse one is the controlling verse here. He loved his own to the end, to the max. And so really, this is not a passage primarily about foot washing. No, this is a passage about Jesus' divine and saving and humble and incarnating and sacrificing and forgiving, redeeming love he has for his people. And the foot washing here is merely a living picture, call it a living parable of the love that Christ has for us. Again, this is divine love on display. And you can see the symbolic nature here in verse seven. Verse seven, Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now. Of course, Peter realizes that he's washing feet, physical washing. What I do, you do not realize now in this moment. This goes far beyond your dirty feet, Peter. But you will understand hereafter, after the cross, after the resurrection, after the spirit comes to illuminate your mind, then you'll understand. Again, everything Jesus does here is highly symbolic. It's a picture of how far Christ's love reaches for his own. Again, a living parable of verse one, Jesus loving his own to the end. This is how far Jesus will go in his love, not only for his apostles, but for us as well. Let's look at the symbolism. It's astounding, really. First of all, Jesus shows that he loves us. He loves us enough to leave heaven for earth. He loves us enough to leave heaven for earth. Remember, he's going to command his apostles, love one another. The question is, how are you to love one another? To what extent? Christ is saying, I'm the model here. And he begins with all of these actions by showing he loves us enough to leave heaven for earth. Notice the connection that John makes in verse three. Jesus knowing what? Knowing that he had come forth from who? From God and was going back to God. Knowing that, knowing the incarnation, knowing that sacrifice, verse four, he got up from supper and laid aside his garments. When Jesus gets up from the table, 
He is giving his apostles a living picture of his incarnation. What it took for him to come forth from God and then to go back to God. What did it take? Well, it took Jesus laying aside his outer garments of glory and taking upon himself the undergarments, the slave rags of humanity. That's what the incarnation took. This is how John began his gospel. Remember chapter one. In the beginning, the word was with God, face to face with God in his presence. And the word was God clothed with the majesty of deity. But the word doesn't stay in glory, does he? Verse 14, the word becomes what? Flesh. He leaves, he goes forth from the Father. He leaves the Father for this earth. That's how John started his gospel. And now here in chapter 13, this is how John is beginning to end his gospel. The living picture of the incarnation. This is the same imagery Paul uses to describe Christ's incarnation, Philippians chapter two. Although he, Christ, existed before the incarnation, he existed in the form of God, it's divine essence, divine glory. What does the son do? He empties himself. He doesn't empty himself of deity at all. No, he empties himself of every privilege of deity. He removes the clothes of glory that he once wore. And he takes the form of what? A slave. That's what we see Jesus doing in John 13. He takes the form of a slave, the posture of a slave. And then Paul adds this, being made in the likeness of men. That's incarnation. He removes those clothes of glory, puts on the clothes of humanity. Just put it in the context. While the disciples selfishly are refusing to leave their place around the table to wash one another's feet, that's why Jesus has to do it. The disciples won't. While they're arguing about their greatness, Jesus shows them what divine love does. It lays aside glory for the rags of this world. How much does Jesus love his own? What does it mean for Jesus to love us to the end? It means that he loves us enough to leave heaven for earth. There's another symbol here, symbolic picture. Second, Jesus also shows us, shows his apostles, that he loves us enough to experience death in our place. He loves us enough to experience death in our place. Every word John chooses here is by design. And there are two verbs to underline in this passage, two main verbs. They bookend the passage, bookend Jesus washing the disciples' feet. The first is in verse four, first word. We are told that Jesus laid aside, tithemi, he laid aside his garments. It's the first key word. The second is in verse 12, where Jesus takes, lambano, takes his garments. So he lays aside, he then takes back. 
Now, why are those two verbs significant here? Well, because those are the same two verbs Jesus used to describe his coming death and resurrection back in John chapter 10. Again, this is by design. This is a picture of what Jesus is going to do. Being drawn back to Jesus' parable of the good shepherd. How do we know that? Because only here in John 13 and there in John 10 are these two verbs, lay aside and take. It's only there that they're used together. So look back at John 10. What does Jesus want his apostles to think on as he does this? You know the passage, verse 11. Remember what he claimed for himself. I am the good shepherd. How good are you? How great are you? I am the good shepherd. And what does he do? He lays down. It's the same word. It's, he lays aside. Same verb. He lays down his life for the sheep. Repeat it again in verse 15. I, Jesus says, lay down. Same verb. I lay aside my life for the sheep. Again in verse 17, I lay down my life. But then Jesus adds the second verb. I lay down my life so that I may what? Take it. Take it again. Just like Jesus will take his garments back and put them back on. It's repeated again in verse 18. I lay it, I lay my life down on my own initiative. Just like Jesus willingly humiliating himself in the upper room there. He takes off his outer garments. That's his choice. So too, he willingly dies in the sinner's place. I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. This is the selfless love of Christ, the sacrificing love of Christ, the dying love. And then he adds that second verb, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to what? Take it up, take it back. I'll put my robe back on, my life back on. So when you put these two passages together, John 10, John 13, you see the symbolic picture of Jesus' foot washing. The outer robe is also a picture of Jesus' life. He'll lay it down in just a matter of hours. But sure enough, three days later, what will he do? He'll take it back again. That's what Jesus will refer to in John 15 13, greater love has no one than this than to what? Lay down, same verb, lay down, lay aside his life for his friends. Jesus' love for us is not sentimental or cheap. Jesus' love for us is not hallmarky. Can't find a card in the store to describe this. His love for us is purposeful, it's intentional. Costly, he loves us enough to lay down the robes of his life and die in our place. Again, all of this, remember, is leading to those commands love one another. What kind of love are we to have for each other? What is our love for one another built on? It's built on this love, divine love. Notice third here, a third picture. 
of Christ's love for us we see. Number three, Jesus loves us enough to endure God's wrath for our sin. Jesus loves us enough to endure God's wrath for our sin. Look back at verse 8, 13.8. Peter, still not seeing any symbolic nature of what's going on. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Peter's thinking purely on the physical level. He's still aghast. Jesus would be wearing slave attire. But Jesus begins to open Peter's eyes, ever so slightly here. And Jesus answered him, if I answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Again, it's not about your feet, Peter. It's not the point here. It's about your heart. And I'm not talking about the water and basin in my hands. I'm talking about the spiritual washing every sinner desperately needs. The washing of the heart. Only I can give the sinner. Only I can do this. That word washing that Jesus uses, it's the Old Testament way to describe salvation from sin. I think of Psalm 51, wash me is the prayer, wash me thoroughly from my sin, cleanse me from my iniquity. Think of God's new covenant promise to his people. I will sprinkle clean water on you, I'll clean you, wash you, you will be clean. What kind of cleansing? Not outward, inward. I will cleanse, wash you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Sin is dirty. It's filthy. And God must clean it. He must wash it if we are going to be with him. You can put a theological word on this. It needs to be atoned for, paid for. Sin must be forgiven if we are going to have life with God. This is why Jesus says, continue verse eight. If I do not wash you, again, amazing statement. Jesus is saying, I can do what the Old Testament says only God can do. Again, claiming deity here. If I do not wash you from your sin, you have no part, no portion. You're excluded from me. Again, that's salvation imagery. Old Testament, that word part there, portion, refers to life in the promised land. Revelation, it'll be life in God's coming kingdom. What's Jesus' point? Only I can grant you access to God's presence. Only I can do that. Only I can give you your eternal inheritance, your portion in the kingdom. Only I can wash you spiritually. That's what Christ's death did. His death was not just a physical death, though it was that. But it was not just a physical death. It was not just laying aside of his life to take it again. No, it was also a spiritual death, spiritual offering that provided atonement and payment, a cleansing for our sin. And if we are given that, we will have a part with him, a portion in his kingdom. 
This is the promise that Jesus is giving these apostles. This is how much I love you. So at this point, it's starting to make sense for Peter. He's beginning to realize Jesus is speaking in spiritual realities. He's beginning to realize this is not just about foot washing at all. And so verse nine, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, don't you just love Peter? Makes us all feel good about ourselves. Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. So at one point he's saying, you can't wash my feet, though you want to. But now he says, you can't do what you want to do. You need to do more than you want to do. Thank you, Peter. I want a shower. That's what he's saying. Give me a shower. Right? Not just the basin and the bowl. Well, it leads into a fourth picture of Christ's love for us. Number four here, Jesus loves us enough to grant us daily forgiveness when we sin against him. Jesus loves us enough to grant us daily forgiveness when we sin against him. Notice verse 10, Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. Peter, pardon the pun here, Peter, why do you always put your foot in your mouth? It's a dirty foot, Peter. You don't need the full bath of salvation again. You've already been given that. Okay, let's put it in theological, doctrinal terms here. You don't need my judicial cleansing of your heart again. You don't need to be justified, declared righteous again. That's the shower Peter was asking for. You don't need a sh to be showered, Peter. Why? Notice the middle of verse 10. Because you're completely clean, judicially clean, justified, declared righteous. Your heart's been washed thoroughly. But Peter, there's still a problem. Though your heart has been washed, your feet are still dirty. What's the symbolism of love here? It's this, because of Christ's love for us, he promises in love to give us two kinds of spiritual cleansings. The first is that he gives us a spiritual bath, a spiritual shower when we come to him in saving faith. It's that once for all, never needing to be repeated, washing from our sin, judicial forgiveness, justification, declared righteous. But that's not where Christ leaves us. That's not where Christ's love for us ends. Now he continues to love us by cleansing us from sin daily throughout our life. You can call it a spot cleaning. An ongoing washing of our feet as we walk the dirty streets of this world. It's symbolic of the relational forgiveness we need with our Father. Yes, we are a child of God adopted into his family. We are fully forgiven by him judicially, but still, what must we pray? Our Father, forgive us of our debts. We still come to him in confession. Scrub the dirt from our feet. 
scour the worldly crud that we've touched. Wipe the the soil that has clung to us. We've been declared righteous in his eyes when he bathes us. Now he makes us righteous in his eyes through a daily washing. Peter's going to need this, isn't he? Because what is Peter going to do in just a few hours? I do not know this man. This is the point of 1 John 1. 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Christ bathes us in full judicial forgiveness through his death, his substitutionary death, but that's not where the love of Christ ends. No, verse nine, if we confess our sins, continually confess our sins, not one time act of confession, continually an ongoing life of confession. What is the promise? Where there's daily confession, there's daily forgiveness. Because our God is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins, to tear down any relational sin barrier between us and our Heavenly Father, restore any fellowship that's lost, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, scrub us, spot clean us from all unrighteousness. I hope we're beginning to understand John's statement in verse one, Christ loved us to the end, to the max, to the greatest of lengths. What more could Christ do? What greater love could Christ have for us? His love is a cosmic love, a love that left the glories of heaven for this world. This is a condescending love. The self-sufficient creator lays down his life in love for us. This is a saving love. Through death, he restores us to the Father forever. And his is a sanctifying love, not only declaring us righteous, but making us righteous. He loves us to the greatest extent. He loves us to the end. And why is Jesus doing all of this on this night? Because of verse 15, I gave you an example Don't compare your love for one another to how that other person loves you. I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you, not wash feet physically. Again, that's not primarily the point. I gave you an example of what love looks like. Which is why he says in verse 34, here's my new commandment, love one another. But then notice that next statement, as I have loved you. I'm the example, I'm the model. principle is this, where there is a deficiency of love between one another, where there's a deficiency of love between one another, there is a lack of understanding of the depth of Christ's love for us, right? We don't understand it. We're going to pick it up there next week. Don't close your Bibles. 
because that's not how the first half of this passage ends. Look at verse 10. You, speaking to Peter, you are clean. And these words, but not all of you. Shocking. Not all of you, for he knew the one, speaking of Judas, he knew the one who was betraying him for this reason. He said, not all of you are clean. Judas's feet had been physically washed by Jesus. But Judas's heart had never been spiritually cleansed by Christ. And Jesus knows it. Not all of you is a warning to Judas here. This is one last call to him. Turn from the sin you're harboring your heart and be cleansed. Be cleansed by me. Be washed from the filth of your iniquity, your plans, your betrayal. I'd be remiss if I did not offer that same call this morning. If you have not turned from your sin and come to Christ for his forgiveness, for his washing, if you have never been washed thoroughly from your sin, come to Christ in faith this morning. Be cleaned. Be forgiven. And experience his saving love. Experience his love of sacrifice. His love of reconciliation with his father. His love of justification. His love of restoration. His love of daily sanctification. Come to him to be washed. To be forgiven. Because what greater love are you looking for? What greater love could Christ offer? Father, you have certainly shown us a great picture of the astounding love of our Savior. And it's through symbols. Sometimes words just can't do things justice, especially when we're talking about the infinite love of Jesus. And so, Lord, burrow us into Christ's love. Bring us deep to recognize it in new ways, to cherish it in new ways. Oh, but please don't let that knowledge stay there. Let us in turn love one another here. Be intentional about it, purposeful about it. Let us forgive one another Let us be committed to one another. Let us show love to the max, to the full for one another. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.